left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. It's important to compare cost estimates included with syndicators projections to the ranges that I have in the book, but it's also relevant to compare that to the property's historical performance. And don't always assume that, oh, the new operator is going to do better and those costs are going to go down. It doesn't happen. The costs don't go down. They go up. And you need to be realistic about that. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. I'm really thrilled today to have Brian Burke with us. He is the CEO and founder of Praxis Capital. He is the author of what I think is the best book on passive investing, especially for people like me, the uh, the people that are the investors, is The Hands-Off Investor. Fantastic book. He started in real estate. At age 19, after reading a real estate book, he's been in real estate for 30 years, 20 of those as a syndicator. And most important, he was guest number three on the Passive Investing from Leftfield podcast, which was released over two years ago. I'm really thankful for Brian taking a shot at us when we were on episode three. I think this will be episode 115 or something. So, Brian, welcome to the Passive Investing from Leftfield podcast. Thanks for having me here. It's an honor to be guest number three and on- honored to be back. We're really happy to have you back. So as we talked offline, we've had a lot of people join the community in those past two years and a lot of new listeners to the podcast. So if we could start out the same way we always start out, just kind of with your journey, how did you get into real estate? How did you become a syndicator? Just kind of give us the story there. Yeah, I got into real estate. As you said, I was like barely 20 years old and I had no money. I had no connections. I had no knowledge. I basically had nothing. So I figured... I'm perfectly situated to become a real estate investor. I'm fully equipped with everything you need. So I, uh, I made, made my first house purchase and never looked back. I started out flipping. I was buying, fixing up and reselling houses. I started with one and then, then another just very slowly at first. It took a few years to kind of really get going. Uh, about year six or seven, I was doing a dozen houses a year. And then by uh, year 15, I was doing a couple dozen houses a year and stopped because it's like, you know what? something's going to happen really bad like. And so that was the massive recession. And I managed to avoid all of that because I basically slammed on the brakes right before that happened. Then right after it happened, I built back up and got jumped right back in and was doing 100 houses a year, just like a light switch. It was the greatest time of growth for our business. And as I was doing all this, I was thinking, you know what, I'm building up this great base of investors. We've got this great engine that we've built and two or three years, all these foreclosures are going to be gone. Then what are we going to do? I figured, you know, the best place to turn my focus was going to be into multifamily. I had gotten into multifamily you know, 20 years ago and a 1031 exchange and a personal investment and decided that I needed to grow a multifamily business. And with all these, this great base of investors that I built. And so we started in multifamily, 
My first acquisition was in, or well, my first one was in California. Then my second one was in New York. So I went from one coast to the other and then said, well, let's go in between. So then I was in Texas, did a, a lot of units in Texas for a few years, and then went national about, I don't know, six or seven years ago and bought about 4,000 multifamily units, three quarters of which I just sold over the last, well, a year and a half, two years. It's a great story. And, and I want to back up because things have changed, right? There's, there's, you've been through the ups and the downs. How did you know to stop flipping or reduce what you were doing back in 2008? Because then you kind of did the same thing in 2020, 2021, right? When you were prepping for what was coming. So how did you know then? How did you know now that maybe put the brakes on a little bit? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I don't really look at like, oh, here's a data point that's telling me that it's time to do something. I, I just kind of have a feel for the market. It's just a sense of what's happening. And I tend to rely on it pretty well, because if I don't, then you get your hand slapped. And so back in like 05, 06, what I was recognizing was prices had gone astronomically high. Rent to Price to rent ratios made absolutely no sense. Every investor I talked to wanted to get in the game. Every property that was listed was getting dozens of offers. And at that time in 05, I was also noticing that most of the offers that were being written were by unqualified investors and or were being financed by really, really shaky loans. And just realizing that all of that can't end well, I felt if everybody wants to buy, this would be a good time to sell or at least stop buying. So that's what drove me then. And then nine, what drove me to really put my both feet back in was that nobody wanted real estate. You know, real estate's toxic. It's catching a falling knife. You know, don't buy real estate. You know, so like, great, this is the perfect time to buy. That's when I really got back into it. And then in 2021, again, same thing I saw in 05, except for the minus out the financing part. Everybody wanted to get in. Everybody was suddenly an apartment syndicator. Everybody was, you know, every property that was listed was getting a dozen or two dozen offers going for astronomical prices that made no sense. And when I saw all of that, it's like, here we go again. It's time. So we started aggressively selling in 2021. We sold uh, our last property and our last one we intended to sell in uh, early 2022. And the timing could have been more perfect because mid 2022, multifamily values dropped at least 20%. Even though most people didn't really recognize it initially, they dropped at least 20%. And so our, our timing probably couldn't have been much better. It's amazing. I guess that the question is, so it sounds like from 2005 to 2009, you weren't really much of a buyer. And then I think you can tell me, but 2021 until now, maybe you're not much of a buyer. So how do you stop yourself from investing, right? You're an investor. You go out and buy apartments. How do you take a two-year hiatus? I mean, I'm still allocating capital. And you know, sometimes I question whether that's a smart thing to do or not, but I'm kind of dollar-cost averaging. But as an operator, a lot of operators, they think, well, I have these investors. If I don't invest in something or let, give them something to invest in, they're going to go away. But you seem to have that discipline. So where does that come from? Well, you know, let them go away. I mean, my my job isn't to invest people's money. My job is to not lose their money. So that's really what drives me. I mean, my, my very first syndication deal was money I raised from my ex-coworkers. Now, mind you, I was in law enforcement when I was working a full-time job to earn an income when I, my house flipping business was small. And when I put in my two weeks notice to quit my job, I told all the guys at the station I was going to have a real estate presentation to come down, right? So they all come down. I give this dog and pony show about real estate and like 28 guys invested with me. I got, I raised half a million dollars in a blind pool that I could use to go and flip houses. I mean, with a $5,000 investment minimum, it was absolutely nuts. But all of my investors were cops. So I used to say like, you know, I have 28 investors that carry guns. So I cannot lose their money. If I lose their money, I'm a dead man. Not only do they know how to kill me, but they know how to get away with it. So that experience has driven me throughout my entire career that my first job is to not lose people's money. So if the market isn't conducive to me making investments, I don't make investments. I don't need to. I, we've, we're well capitalized enough. I don't have to do another thing for the rest of my life and, and I'll still be just fine. Right now I'm working on my golf game. I'm building a new house. I've, I've got other things I can focus my attention on. I don't need to go out and buy apartment buildings just to earn fees so that I can keep the lights on here at the office. That's good to hear. I hope your golf game's going well because I don't know when you're going to be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when you're going to be back investing again. But can you talk about just the current state of the multifamily market? What are you seeing? I'm I'm sure you're still looking at things, right? So 
What are you seeing? What do you think? And where do you think we're headed? I know those are broad, broad questions. Yeah, so we bought our last apartment building in December of 2021 on a semi-distress sale, which seems a little, little odd, but it was a unique circumstance where this guy had to sell. So we got a really good deal on that. And then that was it. We shut it off. December 2021, we shut it off. Haven't bought anything since. For about 10 months, we didn't even really look at deals. A deal would come in my inbox, value add, this and that, everything's great, delete button. That was how I would, every time I would get an email on a new deal, it went straight to the delete button. And about five months ago, we started underwriting deals again. And at first we were doing a couple here and there. Now we're underwriting most stuff that's coming in that fits in our buy box. But we're not doing it with the understanding that we're going to buy any of this stuff. I mean, really, it's just our way of staying in tune to what the market is doing right now so that we can get a read on when the next signals are going to tell us that it's time to buy. I think prices have fallen. I think they have more to fall. I think a lot of that has not been recognized yet because transaction velocity has dropped so dramatically that some people don't understand how much less their properties are worth than they think they are just because there's been nothing to sell to prove otherwise. And until we see a little bit more transaction velocity, we're, we're probably not going to see that in reality. But you know, cap rates have, have decompressed and it's time for people to recognize that. What's going to be the trigger? What's going to cause the velocity of buying, selling to increase to get back out there? Is it do interest rates need to stabilize? I mean, they don't necessarily need to go down, right? I mean, you can still make money at these interest rates. Is it just that there's an imbalance between buyers and sellers and no one knows where interest rates are going to end up? Well, you can make money in any interest rate environment because it just depends on the purchase price, right? So the problem that we've had over the last year and a half is that there's a standoff. Nobody wants to flinch. The sellers don't want to sell it at a lower price than they think that they their property is worth. The buyers can't pay what the sellers want because they just the, simply the numbers just don't work. So nobody's doing anything. So sooner or later, somebody has to flinch. Either the buyers have to pony up and pay, which would be a big mistake, or the sellers have to get real and sell at today's prices. And there's going to be a confluence of factors that's going to cause that to happen. Some of it will be distress. There could be loan maturities. Three, A lot of people were buying on these three-year bridge loans one, two, and three years ago. And guess what? Someone's, someone's knocking at the door. It's, it's time to pay up. And a refinance may not be feasible. It, and if it is feasible, they might have to go to their investors for money and their investors might not want to pony that money up and they might be forced to sell. In some cases, they might be forced to sell at a loss. But certainly they'll be forced to sell it at market value. That's one thing. Another one could just be simply life cycle. I mean, there's if you had a an eight-year fund and it's been eight years and your investment mandates are to sell and you don't have extension options and you go to a vote of the members and the members don't vote to extend, you have to sell. I mean, there's a lot of people were buying with what I call so-called hot equity. You know, they go to say, for example, private equity, JV equity, or pref equity, and those equity tranches have life cycles where they say, you know, you will sell in three years, whether it's come hell or high water, you can wipe out your common equity, we don't care, you have to sell. And so those dates are going to come knocking. And, you know, eventually people are going to have to sell. That's what's going to stimulate things to happen again. I mean, some are holding off thinking like, oh, things are going to get better really quickly, right? So we'll just push it back six months. But six months later, things aren't better. They're just going to have to get real and sell. What does get better mean? I mean, I know that the sellers are hoping prices rise, but you think and it makes sense that prices have to fall. Is this all because of inflation, interest rates, or just because it was built up and we had this big bubble because interest rates were so low for so long? What do you think the underlying cause of where we are now is? There's three things, and one of the things is caused by the other two. So the three things are interest rates. That's the one that's on everybody's mind, right? Well, interest rates are rising. Therefore, debt service is rising. And then that sucks cash flow. Therefore, value has to fall to make up for it. And that's true. That is part of it to some extent. But the other part of it is rent growth. When people were buying at crazy, so-called crazy prices in 2021, they were buying on the thesis that rents were growing astronomically. I mean, it, you looked at the Phoenix market in 2021, they're getting 20 to 30% annual rent growth. And when you're underwriting an acquisition and you got a rent growth forecast that says 20% next year, 15% the year after that, 
10% the year after that. And this isn't necessarily apartment syndicators making it up, although many of them did, but there was actual legitimate third-party economists that were predicting rent growths at those levels. And as long as that worked out, then the values that some of these buyers were paying was justified. Granted, it, it results in a three and a half cap, but in two years, you're at a 6% stabilized yield on cost. And the investment actually works out quite well, especially at 3% interest rates. But now rent growth has plateaued. Phoenix has had month over month rent declines for like nine straight months, finally just seeing a positive uptick just in this most recent month. And that blows that rent growth thesis out of the water. So if you can't rely on a growing income stream, because let's face it, when you're buying multifamily asset, you're buying an income stream. Forget about the real estate. That's just what underwrites it. You're buying an income stream. If you believe that income stream is growing, you can pay more for it. That means lower cap rate. If the income stream is not growing, you have to pay less. You just have to. And when the borrowing costs for that income stream go up, you have to pay less. So those two factors are influencing cap rates. Now, the third variable that I mentioned is exit cap. How does a buyer underwrite an exit? What cap rate are you using to underwrite your exit? Right now, no one knows what that is. And until you can get some clarity on the direction of interest rate movement and uh, rent growth movement, it's impossible to quantify exit cap rates with any degree of certainty. And therefore, exit cap rates are expanding. And all three of those factors are causing prices to fall. That's a great analysis. I want to go back to your book, The Hands-Off Investor. In that book, there's a lot of metrics to look at when analyzing a deal, right? That was one of the things I really loved about that book is it spells it out. Here's what a metric is and it tells you all about it. And then it gives you some ranges. Like here's some things that maybe it's in this range that you should think about, you know, like cap rates, economic vacancy, all that stuff. Has any of that, I mean, I think it has certainly cap rates, but what has changed or how have you seen those, some of those metrics change and how should passive investors that are still looking at deals and analyzing, how should they change their analysis of a deal now when cap rates are in a different place, interest rates are in a different place, and rent growth isn't going up again. I mean, can we still look at those same metrics or do we need to reevaluate and, and change our metrics? The metrics are still valid. The, you can Those metrics will serve you in any, any market, any conditions, going up, going down. All those measurements that are included in the book will always be relevant. Now, what will change is what might be considered a normal range for each of those measurements. So here's some examples. I included some examples for costs of maintenance, costs of insurance, costs of personnel, payroll. Inflation has driven the cost of repairs up. So the numbers are probably trending to the higher side of what I included in the book as a reasonable range. And, you know, maybe they even might blow through that a little bit. The competition for human resources have driven wages up. So payroll expenses are going to be higher. Natural disasters have caused insurance to skyrocket, in many cases doubling. And if you're in, you know, Alabama, Florida, right along the coast, forget about it. I mean, insurance costs have gone, you know, through the roof. We've experienced that ourselves. Insurance has definitely gone up. So being cognizant of what actual costs are is helpful. Now, it's important to compare costs estimates included with syndicators projections to the ranges that I have in the book, but it's also relevant to compare that to the property's historical performance. And don't always assume that, oh, the new operator is going to do better and those costs are going to go down. It doesn't happen. The costs don't go down. They go up. And you need to be realistic about that. Recession resilient are two words that are heard often when discussing investing in mobile home parks and self-storage. But what does that really mean? And what happens if there's not a recession? At Crystal View Capital, we are vertically integrated and have over 150 employees focusing on assuring our assets perform daily, regardless of market conditions. With over $85 million in distributions paid to investors since 2014, we focus on downside protection, upside maximization, and all the hard work in between. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about our current offerings, please visit crystalviewcapital.com or click the link in the show notes. Hi, this is Zach Hapenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. 
At Rise48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you. Now, in this market, what do you think passive investors should focus on that maybe wasn't as critical a year ago or two years ago in their analysis? I know, you know, I'm looking closer at debt and maybe rent increases. Are there other things that an investor, other metrics that you should really, well, maybe it wasn't as important back then, but now this is something you should really focus on? You know, they were always important. I was stressing the importance. That was one of the reasons I wrote that book, but people just think that is true. They just ignore it. It's like, well, you know, everything's <laughs> going great. I don't have to worry about this stuff. We'll buy it and it'll go up. But now, now it's actually, wait, oh, I have, I have to look at this stuff. <laughs> so yes, it is very important. And I'd say there's a number of things. First of all, it's very important, if not more so than ever, to make sure that the groups that you're investing with have experience especially market cycle experience. You know, has anybody actually been through tough times or are you looking to allocate capital with someone that's only been investing on a sunny day? Get with people, get with groups and people who have actually navigated some storms. And that's, if they survive that, that's a huge leg up for you in your investment partner selection. That would probably be the biggest one. The second one is, again, going right back to what I always preach, look at those assumptions It's garbage in, garbage out. If the sponsor is filling up the projections with a bunch of trash, anything that they project to you that might happen is all just, it's it's hogwash. So look at their projected interest rates, look at their expense assumptions, look at their rent growth assumptions, get a bit of a pessimistic view of your own to the market and recognize that rosy rent growth assumptions may be too rosy. And then the key thing is the financing structure. What does the financing structure look like? And to me, the things I would look to avoid at all costs would be short-term maturities and high loan-to-value ratios. Those two things together, which is what a lot of these deals had been financed on over the last few years, short-term high-leverage bridge debt, those two things would be a death sentence to a uh, syndication investment because that due date can come and, and you could be in a world of hurt. So I would watch for those things. I would look for lower leverage financing. I would look for longer term financing. There's this fixed versus floating argument that will probably never get resolved. I've made it no secret that I'm a big proponent of floating rate debt, agency floating rate debt, not bridge floating rate debt. And, you know, for 10 years, I was laughing at the fixed rate guys as they were getting killed by yield maintenance penalties when they sold their deals early. Now they're all laughing at me going like your interest rate went up, your rate cap replacement costs are high, et cetera, et cetera. But I wouldn't want to be locking in a fixed rate loan at the peak of the interest rate cycle. That would be a little scary because if interest rates fall, the yield maintenance on that would be absolutely astronomical. I mean, it would be prohibitive to sell or refinance if interest rates were to fall and you had a fixed rate loan locked in right now. So financing structure is very important. There's a lot to look at and some of that, you just have to make sure it aligns with your beliefs and where the market is going. And so just to make sure everyone's on the same page, can you talk about the difference between agency and bridge debt on the floating rate? And then also talk about for the fixed rate, what what yield maintenance means, what it costs, and, or what, what the downside is from having to, because I assume that's the penalties you pay to get out of a fixed rate debt. So can you kind of talk about that just so everyone's understanding what we're talking about here? Yeah, that's right. So agency debt is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These are the government-sponsored enterprises that back multifamily lending. And agency debt is kind of like the gold standard for multifamily lending. Bridge debt is usually done by debt funds that are privately held funds that loan money to real estate investors on an interim basis. And they're usually used for like, if you have a property that doesn't qualify for agency debt, for example, like maybe the occupancy isn't high enough or whatever. And there's a turnaround story and say, okay, we're going to borrow. It's a three-year loan, but we're going to be able to refinance in two years after we shore this place up and get the occupancy up and fix it up and this and that. So 
they'll the ultimate goal would be to actually end up in agency debt down the line but the time you have that bridge debt is a big risk so the bridge debt generally has a three-year maturity oftentimes it has two one-year extension options the challenge is is that oftentimes those extension options come with some kind of loan covenant that must be met and if it's not met you don't qualify for the extension the loan can be called at the three-year period you have to pay that loan off so that's really risky three years goes by in the blink of an eye agency floating rate debt is different in that it has longer maturities it's not designed for those deep value add so-called deep value add heavy lift type business plans Generally, the maturities are five, seven, or 10 years. You can pay it off any time after the first year by paying one point. That's it. That's your whole exit penalty is one point on the loan. So it's 1% of the loan amount. I tend to favor 10-year floating rate agency debt because I've got no problem, no maturity risk. 10 years is a long time. The rate does float, but I can pay it off at any time by paying a 1% exit fee. That's it lots of flexibility and we use that flexibility heavily i mean there were properties we owned for 20 months and sold them at double their value that had we had a fixed rate debt we would have paid millions of dollars in yield maintenance so what is yield maintenance it's basically a prepayment penalty so fixed rate debt in the commercial space is different than like your fixed rate debt you would get to buy a home where you know 30-year fix that's the gold standard for residential mortgages right no problem you can pay that off anytime you want, no problem. In the commercial real estate space, that's not the case. And here you have the loans are ultimately sold into mortgage-backed security pools. And those investors are guaranteed that they're going to receive a certain interest rate for 10 years. And if you pay the loan off in two years, they still get their eight years of interest. I mean, in simplest terms, you're paying 10 years of interest on that loan, regardless of when you pay it off. If you pay it off at 10 years, fixed rate penalty doesn't cost you a thing. But if two years from now you go like, wow, this would be a really good time to sell because I think the market's about to tank and I want to get out at the top. Guess what? Uh, You're going to have to pay eight years of interest on that loan that could amount to millions and millions of dollars. And you might elect to either A, pay it off and not make nearly as much as you would like to have made, or B, hold on and hope that maybe you were wrong and the market stays good and you're going to just wait it out for 10 years and now you just lost out on an opportunity to sell at the top. So a fixed rate may seem as though it's risk-free, but it has its own set of risks. Uh, great, great explanations. Now, the, the thing that often people get confused, I think rate caps and cap rates. We're going to talk about rate caps right now, right? Which is, are the rate caps that people are buying, are they the same for the agency debt as they are for bridge debt, or are there differences there? There's some differences. So a rate cap, as you mentioned, different than a cap rate. So whenever you take out floating rate debt, the lender wants to know that if interest rates rise, the rate can't rise too high, right? So you want to have some limit to how high the rate will go. Now, in residential lending, if you do a variable rate, usually they'll have a maximum rate built into it. It's just a feature of the loan where they say like, okay, the rate's 3%. It's variable off of the SOFA rate with a maximum of 11%, let's just say. Well, in the commercial space, they don't do that. In the commercial space, in order to cap the interest rate, you have to buy a derivative And that's bought from a bank that underwrites these investments and then it costs you money. And to them, it's a financial investment, right? They sell this derivative to you so you can transfer interest rate risk to them. That costs money. Two years ago, an interest rate cap on a $20 million loan might have cost you 10 grand. It wasn't a lot of money. But an interest rate cap today would be about 500 times that amount, quite surprisingly. So it's uh, rate cap costs have gone up through the roof. Now, The way that this works with bridge debt is, or I should say agency versus bridge, agency will underwrite to a one-to-one debt coverage ratio. So they're basically looking at what interest rate does the property break even based upon historical financials, not the financials you're going to have a year from now or two years from now, which are likely to be better, but historical financials. What's the rate that kind of gets to that breaking point? And that's where they'll set what they call the strike rate. Generally speaking, the strike rate is one or 2% higher, maybe as much as two and a half or 3% higher than the current rates. So that rate cap is pretty reasonable in that rates don't go up very much on these floating rate loans. But on a bridge debt, 
they don't underwrite it the same way. They basically set their caps based upon their tolerance level or by a debt yield or whatever. And that cap might be a lot higher strike and it could be a lot more expensive. So your rate can run a lot more out of control on bridge debt with a rate cap and the rate cap can cost you even more. And that's kind of the downside that you find. Whereas agency debt, it doesn't cost as much and your rate doesn't go up as much, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that was a great explanation. And then one more question on, on rate caps. Are, is the cost of that, now you said it's gone up 500 times or whatever, it's gone up a lot, right? So it's not because of the interest rate is higher than it used to be. It's because interest rates are in a period of movement. Is that accurate? Like if the interest rate stabilized, and everyone's comfortable that, hey, interest rates are going to be 5% for the next three years, then rate caps will go, costs will go down, right? Is, is my understanding that correctly? Yeah, there's basically two things that drive the price of the rate cap. The first is the, is the rate strike. You know, as depending upon your price, the historical income and all that, the strike that's being set is going to influence the rate cap cost some. And I think strikes have probably tightened a little bit because cash flow is more compromised without because prices were still kind of artificially high and people were still borrowing a lot and all that stuff. So the, the strikes ended up coming in a little bit tight. But the real driver for rate cap costs is interest rate volatility. Again, you remember what the transaction is. You're paying a bank to accept the risk of interest rate movement. And so the more volatile interest rates are, the more scary that investment is for that bank and the more rate cap premium they're going to want to charge in order to assume that risk. When interest rate volatility declines, rate cap costs will decline dramatically. And when interest rates start to fall, rate cap costs will decline even further. Let's say there's a deal that it looks like it could be in trouble, right? Because the, their interest rate keeps going up, the cap price keeps going up, and so the bank makes some escrow, right? A bunch of money to pay for those future interest rate caps that they're going to have to buy. So these companies that maybe stop distributions or thinking of, hey, I'm going to have to sell in distress or a capital call, when let's say interest rates stabilize and they stop going up, Will all of that escrow money be released and then that effectively might save some of these deals or is it just you're just going to some of these deals are going to go bad regardless? First of all, let's talk about a deal going bad. Cutting off distributions is not the worst outcome. The worst outcome is them getting stuck into foreclosure and having a loss of principal. And this is a distinction that investors need to be very cognizant of. Has cash flow stopped or are we at risk of losing our investment? Those are two entirely different things. And I would say that being at risk of losing your investment is kind of the worst case scenario. And the interest rate cap is unlikely to be the cause of that. There's going to be other things, other factors like a loan maturity that could cause you to actually lose principal if you end up forced to sell. But uh, having distributions cut off, that's kind of part of the deal, right? I mean, people have been very accustomed to regular distributions because everything has been going very, very well. But in the commercial real estate space, variability of income and variability of distributions is very common. And it's just kind of part of the drill. But it's very true that interest rate caps, uh, replacement costs have become a big issue in distributions. Now, where this becomes very problematic is for groups that don't have the money. So let me give you an example. We have a property where when we purchased it, our interest rate cap replacement reserve escrow was $1,000 a month. We just got notified about two weeks ago that they have increased it to $89,000 a month. So to go from $1,000 a month to $89,000 a month tells you a lot about the cost of interest rate cap replacement estimates. But so here's where the distinction comes in. If we didn't have cash and we didn't have cash flow and, it was, and things were tight and we didn't have $89,000 a month for this interest rate cap reserve, we would be in a lot of trouble. Now, what kind of trouble? Well, it could mean that, you know, could we end up defaulting on the payments? I mean, supposedly that that could be a potential outcome and that could result in loss of principal. Now, fortunately, we're very well capitalized and we have no issue with making this payment, but it does absolutely affect distributions. Now, what happens is, let's say that cap doesn't expire for, I think it's nine months from now. In that period, Interest rates may come down, they may stabilize, volatility may come down. A lot of things could happen that would cause the rate cap replacement to cost far less. Other things are I might make a tactical decision and do a one-year rate cap instead of a three-year rate cap. And then hopefully within the year after that, then volatility would improve 
and there are some ways to manage it. Now, when you get to that point where the rate cap is purchased, if there's surplus money in the rate cap reserve escrow and it's not needed for the next rate cap replacement, those funds can be released by the lender back to the borrower, i.e. the partnership. The partners can then in turn distribute that to investors. So it might mean that this is just simply a delay of distributions, or it might mean that those costs actually do get sucked up in the cost of a rate cap replacement. That is possible. As you said, all of it, a lot of it depends on the experience of the operator and making sure they know what they're doing and buying the rate caps and structuring the loans and all of that. So that makes complete sense to me. So we talked about this last time, two years ago, that in your book, you say the goal of an investor is to eliminate any single point of failure. And one way to do that is by diversifying among various sponsors, locations, property types, I assume asset classes. Has that changed or or is it solidified now when we're in a different type of market? Because a lot of people in our community, myself included, you know, we're not just going to take two years off from investing. We kind of think, I think of it as dollar cost averaging. I'm, I'm much more careful now. I'm taking smaller swings, but I'm still allocating capital. So should I have the same strategy I had before of eliminating that single point of failure and, and keep diversifying? Or should I concentrate just on the really experienced operators in certain locations and certain property types? Well, I think you're doing both, right? I think you're concentrating on the most experienced operators, but you're not focusing solely on one. You are spreading your risk around to more than one operator. You know, the, a friend of mine lost her entire life savings, her entire life savings in a, a syndicated real estate investment. She put it all with one sponsor who turned out to be a crook and stole all the money and ended up, he was in prison and she was broke. She would have only been half broke if she would have just broken up into two syndicators. So I think it's important for people to to spread their risk around. Even in times like this, it's even more important to make sure you're spreading your risk around. But it doesn't mean you have to be in a hundred different deals and you're going to put money with everybody that comes along and asks for it. It means that you're going to just you know, take really smart tactical allocations to make sure that if one of these syndicators goes belly up, you're not completely wiped out. You'll, you'll still have something left. Asset classes, it's same goes. You know, if you find opportunity in other asset classes, you should look at it. I said earlier, we're kind of standing down and we are. But one of the things that I've always done is I've always looked at where the opportunity is. And, you know, right now I found the opportunity is in real estate debt. So we've actually launched a debt fund, which is something that you I couldn't imagine having done 10 years ago. I wouldn't have even considered doing that. But I'm always looking at, you know, where do I see an opportunity to make money? Where do I see an opportunity to allocate investor dollars? As an investor, where do I see the opportunity to allocate my dollars and have the best chance for a positive outcome? And that might just mean shifting your strategy or your focus to what is working in today's market or what's a defensive play in today's market. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about a different asset class, right? Because I see a lot of operators, they're multifamily and now multifamily's changed, uh, more difficult market. So maybe now they're self-storage or they're going to do RV parks are becoming popular, car washes, all these different things. So you're not looking at any of that, but debt is where you're going. So talk about the debt and what kind of debt, what kind of fund is this? Yeah. And by the way, I did all those things in my younger years too. Oh, I'll go do self-storage and I'll go do a hotel and I'll do this and that and the other thing. Every time I stepped outside of my lane, my hand got slapped. So I decided that I wouldn't do that anymore. And unfortunately, I never lost investor money. I can still say that after uh, 30 years in this business, I've never lost a dime of investor principal, knock on wood. I have no intent of starting that now, but I sure got my own personal slaps on the wrist for venturing outside of my box. So yes, they can go and diversify into other asset classes. Some of those ventures might be wildly successful. Others, maybe not as much. You know, I'm always looking at the experience of the sponsor. And when they start doing things they aren't experienced in, it increases the risk. That's all. But the real estate debt is it's for me, it's it was a new field for me five years ago. I started up a bridge lending company five years ago. I don't even know if I ever told you about it. But we were making loans to real estate investors. I thought, well, you know, we'll we'll do 30 million a year. Maybe we could loan out to real estate house flippers, that sort of thing. Well, the business took off beyond my wildest expectations. And we did $2 billion in loans. We did 1 billion in our last year, which was 2021 into the first half of 2022. 
And when you do a billion dollars in a year, you don't do that and not get noticed. And we got noticed and, you know, somebody came along and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And, you know, I could have the opportunity to semi-retire, I guess. So we, we sold that company. It got me a good intro into the debt world. And so I started this fund a few months ago and we're basically, we're buying loans from our old company. And these are performing short-term bridge loans made to real estate investors, mostly house flippers, but a little bit of small balance commercial residential commercial, like multifamily, fourplex, fiveplex, 10 unit, 20 unit, you know, the smaller type stuff. We're buying those loans and it's a great business for us. It's a, it's a good steady income. And, you know, our investors that have like been frustrated by the apartment syndication world where now distributions are getting cut off and all that. And that's, that's part of it that will come back. But if they do want cash flow today, debt is a place to do it because you get cash flow day one and apartment syndications right now, you're probably not going to get that. The downside is there's no big upside. There's no big payday. This isn't a, a 2x multiple kind of uh, investment. This is a, it's a cash flow play, but it's a low risk cash flow play relative to the risk that you take in owning real estate right now. Right now, if things fall 30%, it's somebody else's 30% that gets lost, not ours. And that, that's where I want to be right now. I want to understand this a little bit more. So the previous company was loaning to bridge uh, borrowers, right? So real estate flippers or whatever. And as I remember it, you would then sell those loans pretty quickly after you initiated them, thereby it felt like reducing the risk almost to nothing because you would initiate the loan and then you'd be done with it. So now your old company is initiating the loan and they're selling it to who you used to sell it to, which is now yourself. So are you in a riskier position on these loans than you were before, which doesn't make it bad, just recognizing that the difference. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that business was probably the greatest business model I ever created because there was almost zero risk. Uh, you know, we were literally in and out of those loans in a, num- a number of days. Best business we ever did. You know, we did $2 billion with $50 million. And you know, that's hard to do. You got to be turning really, really quickly. But when you turn, you also eliminate your risk. So it was a great business model. And the capital that we raised, that 50 million, was extraordinarily low risk. But, you know, it was also, it was a a lower return. So low risk begets lower return. This time we have more risk because we actually have borrower default risk. We didn't have borrower default risk, really, not very much in the old company. But here we do have borrower default risk. Of course, we have some backstops to deal with that, you know, equity, borrower balance sheets, track record, historical experience requirements, FICO, you know, all that different stuff. But we do have that risk. Although the return that we can deliver to our investors is higher than the return that we were delivering to investors in the other company that had a lot lower risk. Everything in this business is all about risk adjusted return, right? People always want to focus on what's the number. Is it 6%, 8%, 12%, 20%? What's the number? But really it's What's the number and what's the risk and how do those two interplay with one another and what's reasonable? Excellent. That's great stuff. So one more topic. I know we're, we're kind of going long here, but this is great stuff. I appreciate you staying on is when we talked before, you were just starting your fund, right? You, were, you had single asset deals and then I think you moved into the fund model. And part of that was because at the time, the market was very competitive. And I think you explained it that when you're negotiating and you have a bucket of cash, people, it's easier to close a deal than when you go have to go raise it. And that was one of the reasons for switching to a fund model. So as the market continues to change, are you going to go back to the single asset deals if you can ever find a deal that pencils, or are you going to continue in the fund model? You know, that's a tough question to answer because if I find a deal that pencils, and I think it's the only one we're ever going to find, or at least for a while, that doing a single asset deal might make sense. But if we find one and we think that there's a reasonable likelihood that we're going to find others, I would far rather go the fund route. You know, the fund route provides us the advantage of being a stronger buyer for the, you know, to to get deals. In fact, the deals that we have in our fund, we absolutely would not have been able to get if we did not have a fund structure. The opportunity would not have been there for us. Case in point, the last deal that we closed was a $150 million three-property portfolio. We closed that deal in 26 days. And we never could have done that if we didn't have a fund. And we never would have got the deal if we couldn't close it in 26 days. So that's where the fund comes in. So that's the advantage for us. 
The advantage for the investor is, remember the single point of failure discussion that I keep bringing up, we can provide a portion of that single point of failure reduction internally by using the fund structure because we can buy multiple assets, we can buy them in different places. We may not do the multiple asset type diversification because we're not gonna go out and buy an office building with our multifamilies. And we can't provide sponsor diversification, but we can at least satisfy some of the diversification single point of failure elimination by using the fund structure. So I would far rather remain in the fund structure if we can, but we're open to single asset deals if situation proves that that's most warranted. I hope that you find some deals soon because you know I've invested with you and had a good experience. And I'd like to do that again, but we might have to wait a little bit longer. But listen, this has been fantastic. I appreciate you being on the podcast. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about Praxis Capital, what's the, what's the best way to do that? Through our website, praxcap.com, it's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. That's the best way to get in touch with us if you're interested in investing. If you're just curious about following the things that are on our mind, you can follow me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke. You can catch me on biggerpockets.com in the forums answering questions. Or if you want to know everything that's in this brain, which it's all, it's only real estate because it's the only thing that's in there, you could get a copy of the Hands-Off Investor and there's 350 pages of everything I know in there. That's fantastic. And, you know, I say this all the time, but if you haven't bought that book yet, then you're missing out and you shouldn't be investing in multifamily until you buy that book. So thank you for being on the podcast, Brian. We always appreciate you and we'll definitely get you on sooner than two years for the next one. I look forward to it. Thank you. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. If you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably already thinking about ways to generate income passively and to reduce your tax burden. But did you know that you can retain more of your W-2 income by investing in oil and gas? As you might know, my income is generally passive, but if you're a high wage earner who still gets a large portion of your income from a W-2 job, this investment opportunity could help you hold on to more of your hard-earned money, which means you have the chance to make more passive investments. Billy Keels and the team at First Generation Capital Partners are experienced with investing in this sector, and they have a free download available for our listeners who want to learn more. To find out just how much you could save by investing in oil and gas, head to firstgencp.com slash LFI pay less tax and download your free guide. I could talk real estate with Brian all day. That guy just knows his stuff and it's fascinating listening to him. Every time I listen, I learn a whole bunch and he nailed it when he said, my job isn't to invest people's money, my job is to not lose their money. And that really says all you need to know. Yes, he's more conservative than others, but where do you wanna put your money? Someplace where you're not gonna lose it, and then hopefully you get some cash flow, hopefully you get some gains, but you're not gonna lose money, and that is critical, and he just said it, he said it so well. A couple other things he talked about, you know, prices for properties are still falling, and a lot of the sellers don't realize that they have a little bit further to go, so there's a standoff between sellers and buyers, and that is why there isn't as much deal flow, and that's why probably what you're seeing is mostly distressed deals, because the, the buyers and sellers haven't matched up their intentions or, or where they think things are gonna be. And we talked about why are we where we are, right? Why didn't things just go up forever? Well, things can't just go up forever. We live in a finite world. You can't have infinite returns forever. You can't have infinite rent increases forever. What Brian was saying is we have three things going on, rising interest rates, and as we said, rent growth that is not continuing to increase because it can't go up forever. And then one of the biggest ones he mentioned was exit cap rates. They're just unknown. No one knows what the exit cap rates will be. There's no good way to estimate what the exit cap rates will be. And so when you're trying to do your pro forma and you're trying to figure out how this deal will pencil, well, if you don't know what the exit cap rate is, you're going to have some problems trying to figure out how to exit the deal. And that that is a problem for people that are trying to buy real estate. And this also, Brian said about volatility in the interest rate, that causes the cost of the rate caps to go up. It's not 
high interest rates that are causing the rate caps to be so expensive. And this is something that I talked to somebody else about, and it's the volatility. So if interest rates stabilize or start retreating, if they stop going up, or if they just become more predictable and stabilize, then these huge rate cap costs will go down and some of the money might be released out of escrow. Now, it might not all happen right away. It might take a while. But so it might just be that distributions are slowed down for some deals rather than terminated. And that's one thing that Brian also said is stopping the cash flow is different than a deal being in trouble. And an operator that stops the cash flow distributions is protecting your investment. So and as Brian said, years gone by before, you know, everything was boom times. It wasn't always consistent. And so we have to get used to the fact that sometimes operators will hold back cash flow, hold back distributions in order to protect your investment. And we just have to be okay with that as long as we understand, hey, the underlying investment is still going as it should. It just has little hiccups because, I don't know, interest rates went through the roof unexpectedly or or however else this happens. And then a couple of things to avoid that Brian mentioned, short-term maturities and high LTVs. So a couple of things to look at when you're looking at deals. You know, you just got to take a second look and maybe really analyze if that's a deal you want to get into if they have those high LTVs and the short-term maturities on their debt. So fantastic information from Brian. I really apologize to the audience that it took me two years to get him on again because he's so great. He came on when Left Field Investors was CPIG and we had 20 members, he came on a Zoom call and and just talked with us, and it was phenomenal. And he was on episode three of Past Investing from Left Field when no one thought, or I didn't think, we'd get more than, you know, 50 listeners, but he's willing to take a chance on us, and I really appreciate that. He's been a great partner, just so much knowledge, and he's promised to come on anytime we want him. So I am going to pledge here publicly that we will not wait two years before getting Brian back on. Awesome, love talking to him. That's all we have for today. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.